You're listening to the Prestige 70 Podcast, a collection of intimate conversations with contemporary jazz artists with an eye toward the genre-defining music made on Prestige Records. Our guest today is a virtuoso multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, and producer. He began his career in San Francisco playing and touring with the great Sheila E., He's gone on to record, write, and produce for a wide range of artists, including, get this list, Jay-Z, Leon Bridges, Lizzo, and Shawn Mendes. He's with us today following the release of his debut album, a remarkable genre-bending work entitled Joy Techniques. Nate Mercero, welcome to the Prestige 70 podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to start by talking about your this album, Joy, Joy Techniques, cool. because yeah. you made a very interesting and very intentional decision mm. to create this album using these guitar synthesizers that were built in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. So how did you come to discover these guitar synthesizers? Yeah. Well, it was... Honestly, I'm a big fan of Pat Metheny. Uh-huh. He was actually the first show I ever went to. My dad brought me to a Pat Metheny show. And he always has a part in his performance where he plays that specific guitar synthesizer, the Roland GR300. And I never really put it together when I was a kid what it was. But as I kind of like started getting together and working in the studio more, finding different sounds, like that sound just kind of kept showing up in my mind. Yeah. And I just had to do some research and figure it out. I ended up finding one in some guy's garage in North Hollywood on Craigslist, you know, (laughs) and picked it up. And it became like a tool for me, like in the studio, to create a world of sound really quickly. Because you could blend in guitar tones, synthesizer tones. So really quickly, as just a producer, it became my go-to thing. Hmm. And I ended up making a bunch of music just as a result of this new instrument being around. Yeah. One, yeah. one of the things, you know, they, they st- obviously, Roland stopped making these yeah. years ago. And, yeah. and when I talked to my friends in the guitar world yeah. about these synthesizers and told them about this project, they were like, really? Yeah. Those were like <laughs> the hardest, most awkward things to figure out. Yeah. So how, how long did it take you to get comfortable creating with these. Yeah, it was, there was definitely some time of like really tinkering with it and figuring it out. Yeah. But at the same time, that was the most exciting time about it is like when things go a little wrong or do something unexpected, that's the moment I was trying to capture really. So I kind of mm-hmm. started just recording the first interactions I had with the instrument. And a lot of the songs in the record were a lot of first take ideas that I really ended up fleshing out but it was about capturing those first kind right. of risky, you don't know what's about to happen with this new thing type moment. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to come back to that idea sure. because it, yeah. it ties directly to recordings on Prestige, the, the idea what you're of about. capturing yeah. the, that, that first take. Before we, we get there and just sure. to kind of put the button on the, uh, on the guitar synthesizers yeah. because I'm a nerd for this. Yeah. Um, you've used a phrase describing them, which I found fascinating. You uh. said they have their own dirt. Oh, yeah, for sure. What, what, yeah. Is, what does that mean to you? <laughs> it's similar with a lot of vintage instruments where they'll do something that's slightly not what it's supposed to do. <laughs> it has its own character. Like, a lot of older gear was made, you know, to the best of their ability at that time. Mm-hmm. And there are certain things about when things go maybe a little off or a little unexpected or just a little bit not clean. Like, 
that's the kind of stuff that I like. Like yeah. I like to have to reckon with an instrument a little yeah. bit. Yeah. It, it makes me do something different. You, you made the you made the record using only these synths. There were there were no keys, no keyboards. I did it all with the guitar synthesizers. Right. right. Yeah. So I'm wondering, even though we've been talking about you know sort of how they've allowed you to expand creatively, yeah. If though working within boundaries, in mm. other words, your boundary was were these synthesizers and your guitar. Yeah. If working within boundaries somehow counterintuitively allows you to open up even more creatively. I do find that. Yeah. If if you can set some type of like world that you want to explore within, then it's somehow within that you have you have more of a goal, you know, yeah. and you can explore within these confines. And like at least for me when I set those rules, it makes me go like, okay, well maybe I would do something differently as a result of I'm not going to use a keyboard here. I'm not going to use another instrument. I'm just going to find something unique within this world to do. Mm. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Yeah. When, when, uh, I, I know you, you worked on this album for, for quite a period of time. I did. It was kind of off and on, though, because yeah. I do a lot of production work for other people. Mm-hmm. So this was really, uh, a lot of the music was made in my like apartment at the time and then I kind of transitioned into a studio so a lot of it was just music that showed up over time I didn't even have the intention to make it at first it just mm-hmm. kind of started revealing itself it's like these I think are my tunes and then I had enough of them that I was like okay about the halfway point it spilled over into like okay we're going to make this a thing yeah. so it just slowly revealed itself at yeah. first again one of, the, one of the things and I think it's indicative in the title yeah. is, is um, the, the, the fact of the, the, the joy of creation yeah. As kind of the overarching theme Definitely. To, to, to what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. And like capturing the the thing that you are excited to do. It's like all those songs on the record were started just usually by myself. And mm. it was the type of music that I would have the demo on and it would just play for like two, three hours on repeat. And I was like, okay, I know I have something and no one else in the whole world has heard it. It's just this relationship I have with these sounds at this moment. And I made sure that every song on the record started that way. Yeah. And it's like that was the sign to me that it was something special. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, and we, talked, we talked a minute ago about capturing first takes. Yeah. And this, yeah. this definitely, you know, to my mind, and I've, I've read about your, your thinking in this mm-hmm. regard, ties back to prestige. Yeah. Because so much of the music made on that label was done – Based on first takes. Yeah. You know, these remarkable musicians would get together in Rudy Van Gelder's parents' living room, mm-hmm. which is where he was recording. And Bob Weinstock, you know, would say, go. Yeah. They wouldn't pay for rehearsal time. No. They were just like, go for it. No. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no. I, there was no rehearsing. And and what I read later was if for some reason they needed to do a second take, mm-hmm. he'd erase the first one. Oh, Because wow. he was saving money on the tape. Yeah. But he's also like creating an environment that's like, just bring it right now, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's a good environment to have is, in a is, lot of ways. Um, it, well, let's, let's, you know, kind of transfer this to your thinking. You've produced, yeah. you know, with all manner of, of terrific artists. How do yeah. you approach kind of capturing that initial moment when everything is fresh? Yeah, there's, 
it seems to change depending on the day, the people involved, mm -hmm. but I always like to get the first take, even if it's just completely sloppy figuring the song out, singing, whatever. You know, like, there's something about the first take, even when you're barely familiar with the material, mm. that is always something, yeah. especially with improvised music. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he, uh, there, were, there were stories I've read yeah. where, uh, you know, John Coltrane would come in, you know, yeah. with, with, with a group of guys, and they would, they would go through, you know, whatever it was, a four-hour session or something, and Weinstock would say, we need a blues. Yeah. You got one? Just do one. <laughs> and, 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 and on the spot. Yeah, you know, and and it come, and you listen to it and you go, oh my god! Not only is it terrific to listen to fifty years later or whatever, yeah. but in the moment it had to be right because you're feeling these people like figuring it out. There's yes. an extra bit of like either tension or just excitement that really comes through. It's not yeah. it's not like a palpable thing. It's more like an ethereal like feeling. Right. Right. Yeah. So so on you know in kind of the uh, the extension of this discussion is yeah. I think you played something like seven instruments on this record. Yeah, I did play almost everything on the record, right. and I had some drummers come in to help yeah. me on the percussion side. Yeah. Which which might lead to kind of an endless amount of tweaking. Yes, definitely. And yeah. I'm, so so I'm wondering is 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 it a challenge to know when you're done? Yes, for sure. Cuz like the way I make music is that I'm just doing it every day all the time with you know, really no intention except trying to make things better, you know? So that's my challenge, honestly. Yeah. You just nailed it. It's yeah, like, yeah. when are things done? Yeah. And it's, you kind of just have to be like, well, it is, you know? <laughs> like yeah. You just have to make a choice at yeah. a certain point. But I, I think many, many artists have said this. The, the person I remember saying it first was Sting, mm. who said, you don't necessarily finish an album, you abandon it. Oh yeah, that's kind of sad. You know, which is, you know, which which is sort of the negative way of looking. at But I get it though, because you yeah. just kind of have to be like, I've done what I can do. Like I, anything beyond this, and I'm actually uh, kind of tainting the, uh, the the process. You know, you're right. like you're making it something it's not. Yeah. And a record, if you just think of the word of it, it's like a record of time in yeah. your life. It should just represent that. And if as long as it does that then it's doing its job. Right. right. There's a song on the record, and, and I'm probably yeah. going to butcher the name. Sure. Zala Twitch? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I get the name right? It's, yeah, I honestly wish I could pronounce it correctly. Yeah. I think yeah. it's Zala Tweak. Okay. It's a Polish word. Yeah. And I'm sure someone's going to hear me say that. <laughs> like, yeah. it's not that yeah. either. We, we, may get, we may get, you know, mail on this. Yeah, I would appreciate it, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but, t but you, tell me what it means. Well, so half of my family is Polish, and I've, I haven't really gotten the opportunity to dive into that part of my heritage uh -huh. but i'm kind of fascinated with words that don't translate to english there's there's a lot of them out there yeah but this one in particular was a word that means basically something to the effect of we're doing things not by official means we're going to do it with our friends or we're going to do it kind of behind the scenes and we're going to get it done don't worry about it and that felt really cool to me at the time because huh. i was starting my own record label and I was starting to put out this first album, and I was doing it with my friends, and it really felt like the word just kind of showed up. I don't even remember where I first saw it. it was, I must have been just cruising the internet or something, yeah, yeah. and then it just popped out, and that just felt like a good metaphor for kind of how I was doing things. Yeah, kind of yeah. a Polish version of we got this. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like yeah. that, and yeah. even when you perform the music live, it's a good feeling too, because it's mm. like we're here with our friends. We're, we're not... Uh, doing this through like some type of official means it's yeah. just us hanging out yeah. you know and doing it 
and there's probably a more like defined version of that word mm. that I don't know, but yeah. that's that's like the meaning yeah. that I took from whatever I remember. You, you know. mentioned you mentioned your record label, yeah, How So Records, yeah, How So. And another great phrase that that I read that you used about the label, you called it a record label for seekers. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of honestly just a reference to how I think of music. Yeah, you know, um, which is. There's not really a genre in mind for the label. It's really just doing things that I think are radical or creative. Mm. Like, I'm not super concerned with having a through line of style. I just want a through line of intention, just making things that are interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I go back to the music made on Prestige. And while I'm sure Bob Weinstock would have described his label differently than you describe yours, Mm -hmm. the reality is it's the same thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you look at, like, I mean, I... I was just looking through the vinyl out there, and it's like the amount of different experiences you have in records out there is, like, amazing. Yeah. You know, the bebop at the time was expanding the jazz art form. It was, you know, kind of a reaction to big band. And really, they, the musicians, were bringing the audience along with them. Yeah. You know, they were kind of... You know, the, the, the audience was coming because they were going to this new place with these remarkable... Yeah. Artists. Yeah. And and I'm wondering if that's how you feel about Joy Techniques and mm. your record label. Yeah. I mean, I I would like to think that. You know, that's that's the idea. It's like I it's just like the idea of saying something or I always come back to this idea when like you had a question in class, I remember the teacher would always just be like just raise your hand and ask the question cuz someone else probably has that question. Yeah. I think music is a lot like that. Where it's like if you just want to say something or you want to do something you want to present an idea, just do it to the most honest, pure, best of your ability. And if you can do that, the people will, even if they don't know they wanted it, will be like, oh, I, I feel you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that's kind of what it's about. Yeah. How important is the audience-creator relationship? In other words, yeah. as you're making this album in particular, are you thinking about presenting it to an audience, how this would work in a live context. A little bit, yeah. It's, that's, that's kind of constantly a line to draw in the studio, though. Yeah. Right? It, it also moves a lot. Mm, I'm sure. Because there's a lot of music to be made without thinking about the audience because if you go too far out of like what is meaningful to you, mm. then you're kind of just in the void of no man's land and you're making yeah. things up, this projection of what you think somebody will enjoy, you know? So I find that you can connect with the most people the more you can actually connect with yourself mm. or even just the other people in the room. If you can really get on board with the people you're making things with, then it's almost just like a vote of confidence that what you're doing is going to resonate somehow. Mm. Yeah, that feeling, yeah, that feeling translates. Yeah. One, one of the other things, and, and this is something that even going back to the days um, when Prestige was recording all these remarkable musicians, yeah. is jazz has always fought this impression that it is in some way esoteric, mm. that it is elitist. Yeah, yeah. You know, even though in the days of prestige, th- these were African-American guys who were saying, no, 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 this is ours. Yeah, we absolutely, got a thing. dude. Yeah. You know, we got a thing. Um, but, but that whole issue of being um, academic, mm-hmm. is that something that, that, that you fight against? When you make your music? Yeah, there, there is something about jazz that has been 
it's, it's taught in schools now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah. a lot of music is though. Yeah. You know, there's there's going to be people who consider themselves purists or that they only want something that is referencing this classic era that they really appreciate. You know, but the musicians who are often making the music don't even consider their music jazz. They're just making things that they think are interesting. Mm. You know, and then you could leave the classification up to other people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. An artist recently told me that, you know, she felt pretty strongly that genre yeah. was basically invented as a means to sell music. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me still though, I'm not saying I'm anti genre or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I love looking at like the very like various ways different music has, you know, influenced each other and come together, you know, but Ultimately, yeah, it's, it's a way to categorize something that might not be so easily categorized. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it also struck me that, that um, there's a track on the record, Get Involved. Yeah. Was that you giving yourself a pep talk? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. How so? Ex- explain a little bit. That phrase started to mean a lot to me because I was just moving to L.A. Uh-huh. And it was like moving to a new place is can be tough and just like getting involved in the music scene and that phrase just kept coming up if I didn't want to go out to the jam or I felt like I was kind of just not not a part of anything Mm -hmm. it was like a bit of like just go and get involved and be a part of it and it worked honestly (laughs) like just show up and make the place your home yeah and that's kind of where I'm at now um I I want to talk a little bit about your your career arc yeah because it's been it's been super cool I mean going from you know you know writing and playing, producing for other artists to, you know, ultimately kind of leading your own uh, your own project. Yeah. What was your mindset in terms of making making that transition or did it kind of happen organically? Yeah, it's – I actually wouldn't call it so much of a transition. Mm. I, I think of the, the music career as like just branches on a different tree. Mm. Sorry, different branches on the yeah. same tree. Yeah. Um, like the the artist's career and putting out my own record is not to take over work I do with other people. It's just mm. another thing that I'm going to start doing. Yeah, I'm I'm influenced a lot by um, people who are in music who just do completely wildly different things constantly. Like I love that. Like yeah. Brian Eno is a big one for me. Yeah, and oh that my gosh. he'll he's a producer. Yes, he makes some of the most like you know kind of esoteric ambient music you know he does everything in between and i i love that yeah. like just to occupy all that different space that's what it's really about to me mm. is the variety mm. so this is kind of a part of that yeah, yeah. i love brian you know yeah. um uh, you know we see you know we see some of this you know with with artists on prestige this progression right. and yeah. and i'll use john coltrane yeah. uh, you know as an example who went from an unknown basically sideman mm-hmm. um to a significant you know sort of lead as a band member, yeah, and then ultimately to leading, you know, his own his own groups. Yeah, the final track on your album, mm. "See God Bear Your Soul," yeah, ascend straight to heaven. Yeah, um, you know, you're in my mind, you're making this remarkable spiritual connection to mm. the act of creation. Yeah, Coltrane, and and you know, not in any way to embarrass you, yeah, but Coltrane did the same thing. I mean, he ultimately found this spiritual place mm-hmm. for his music. Yeah. And I'm wondering how much of John Coltrane did you did you listen to? Quite a bit, yeah. And his, especially later career stuff, affected me in that specific way. Yeah. Where he was searching for just something greater through music. And it, 
for him, it was like a connection with God, whatever that meant to him, you know. And a love supreme, you know, is really that, yeah. you know. And even down to the, the, the way I wrote that piece, mm-hmm. it was thinking of artists like him mm-hmm. and Pharaoh Sanders and Alice Coltrane, too. It, it might not sound like them, really, but the intention behind it was, you know, really branched off from Coltrane mm-hmm. and that just that type of thinking about the music like really letting the music be special and be spiritual and don't be don't be ashamed of that just yeah. like go there with it yeah yeah because I think I think any any artist would would tell you and um, again the, you know, the, the quote that comes to mind somebody asked Keith Richards once yeah um, how he came up with these memorable riffs yeah you know, p- things that people remember for decades and he said you know I don't so much create them as I receive them yeah, I, I hear that too. If if you like become a musician who is proficient enough with your instrument mm-hmm. and you could just get in touch with being in the moment, that's kind of how it feels. It's mm-hmm. just like you're just you're just there for it. Like I got the chance to talk to Herbie Hancock one time and mm-hmm. he said something similar. Yeah. And we were asking him like how did you make what was it like to be making these records like Headhunters and stuff and he almost blew it off and was just like I was just there, man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like I love that so much cuz it's yeah. like yeah, you were there, and you were the person who was able to execute and share that idea. Right, you know, right. But to to kind of allow it to be part of this more ethereal music that already exists that mm-hmm. you are more of a, a channel for, mm-hmm. you know? I, I don't know how spiritual I actually feel about what it, whatever that is, yeah. but there's something happening where you, if you're prepared and you're there for it, it, it can show up and mm-hmm. you can be the messenger. You, you've also you, you've used another phrase, and I'm wondering if it connects to this somehow about making music that's relevant to your surroundings oh yeah I kind of got that from Miles Davis to be honest because like when he would in the 80s start using just all the instruments that were around him Mm. he got a lot of flack from whatever the critics were at the time or even audience members like for covering time after time or something Yeah. but it made so much sense to me to just like if you're not making music with this like the technology or even just the the cultural significance that's around you in some way, then it's it's kind of not that relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it makes sense to just be a part of what life is like now. Yeah. Luckily for me, I'm a part of everything leading up to now. So in my mind, everything in the past is also still relevant. So it's like I have the luxury of being able to mind the past in a very specific way, mm. you know, mm. and also bring it into a current context. Yeah. And, and also given where we are with technology, your ability to access. Oh, the access is huge. It makes so much of a difference. I'm yeah. so lucky to have come up. Like I, it, the internet was just really kicking off like when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. So it was like I was still buying CDs. I was going to the CD store and like picking out records just based off the cover, you know, and I, I do <laughs> love that experience. Still a great experience. way it totally to is. buy records. I love that experience. Yes. And yes. then it transitioned into I was able to spend the time on the internet and just YouTubing things I would never have access to now. Yeah. And, sorry, I never had access to then. Then. Yeah, yeah. and it, uh, it really influences, like, the way I make music because yeah. there's no rule. It's just everything's available, so mm. let's utilize it. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 
Priceline. What, yeah. So, um, last question about joy technique. Sure. And then then yeah. I want to talk about some other stuff. Um, but you know, the idea of making music that sustains, mm. you know, because I, I, I think many artists would tell you that, you know, the, the one thing that they would like to do is, is make music that people remember. Yeah. For decades. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I, and that transcends, you know, era and genre and all these things we've been, we've been right, talking about. And right. I think you could certainly make the case for what's been heard on prestige has, Oh, absolutely. You know, transcended. Yeah. Know. No question. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering for you, is, is, is that in your head or are you just doing what, what's here and worrying about that later? Yeah. I, I think, I think it, if I project too far into the future, I get stressed. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm like, what are people going to think in 15 years? It's like I try to not get too far out of my actual feeling and connection with the music myself. And I just have to trust that that connection and my taste or my feeling about the music that I'm making at the time is just what it's meant to be. Yeah. And then, you know, just musically, structurally, it's like melodies often are the things that really transcend in my mind for me. Like, that's the thing that I remember if I, like, think of a Miles Davis record from, you know, Prestige. It's like I can actually just summon the melody in my mind, you know. So that thing, kind of no matter what aesthetic you put on it, that is, for me, what transcends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to go. I want to go a little bit back yeah. in, in in your career, and and I mentioned that you played and toured with with Sheila E. Yeah. How how did you come to meet her? So I was in the Bay, San Francisco, um, just playing around town. Like I was going to college mm-hmm. up there, mm-hmm. and I was getting into the scene, just playing locally. Everything, bars, weddings, just whatever, you know. Like, um, and I met a few musicians in town, and. Got on the radar of a buddy who's now a buddy of mine, this guitar player named Errol Cooney. And uh, he's a Bay Area dude, too. And this guy was so instrumental in my career. I tell him every time I see him, and he's hmm. just like, whatever. But like, <laughs> I, was, I was a sub for him on Sheila's gig. He was, uh, I actually read about him in like Guitar Player Magazine in high school. So it was just this whole trip that I wow. actually got to meet this dude. Yeah. And he just called me to sub the gig last minute. And it was like... Well, I can't do it. Like, I heard you're a guitar player in the Bay who could handle this. And I was just like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I can't say no. And uh, it was, I showed up to rehearsal, which was the day of the gig. We were playing this place called Yoshi's in oh, Oakland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I was pretty much losing my mind because I had never been called for anything that was this uh, intense musically. And just, like, to be called for a gig that was... Like, the, there was just a status element to it. I was like, wow, Sheila E., like, Prince. You know, there's just so much about that that is so legendary to me. And so we started at, like, 10 a.m. that day, and the gig's that night. And you walk in the room, and it's uh, Bobby G's playing guitar, and Levi Caesar's also playing guitar. So we had three guitars. And I, they, nobody told me they were on the gig, so I'm just, like, blown away at these two legends, you know. And Sheila's obviously there, and Eddie M., also from Prince, is on mm-hmm. sax. And Raymond McKinley, like these are all like Prince alumni, you know, so I was, nobody told me. (laughs) (laughs) So I walk in and I'm just like kind of starstruck by these musicians that I've like watched on Sign of the Times or whatever. And it ends up just being the most supportive group of people. You know, Hmm. they're just so nice and they just want, they're excited about me being there, you know, and I was excited to be there. So it just like, me and Levi just started playing some kind of like, 
almost like church gospel quartet mm-hmm. groove together just to sound check. And then it was off from there. It yeah. was like, you know, we just learned the whole, I'd been learning the music. We played the whole set a few times. And I literally held on to that gig <laughs> for like five years after that. And also a buddy of mine, a guy named Mike Blankenship, got the gig with me. And we had been playing around town too. So we really felt like we like, like let's do this, man. Yeah, like let's yeah. make this our thing, you know. And it worked out, and we traveled the world. Yeah. You know? yeah. She, as you mentioned, I mean, she clearly comes from the Prince sort of, you know, school yeah. school of musical preparation. Oh, tell yeah. me, tell me about rehearsing. Yeah. With her, twelve hours. You know, twelve hours. <laughs> we did a few of those. Like, like that's that's kind of the legend of Prince too. It's like play the same groove for eight hours, or you don't know how to play it. That's just that type of mentality. Yeah. Like really getting into the the idiosyncrasies of the most simple things you could do in music. And, you know, Sheila really brings that to her band, too. It mm. was such a learning experience. I learned, I mean, you, you were talking earlier about working at Tower and just, yeah, like, getting yeah. this, like, really kind of maybe informal education, mm-hmm. but the most important one, that's mm-hmm. how it was with Sheila. Like, yeah. she really brought out of me just the type of playing that's, like, if you're going to play something, you better stick it and really mean it. You know, and we're all on the same team here, mm-hmm. but, like, I'm... I'm on you, yeah. you know, and it's it's a good thing. She's like really influential and special to me. Mm, I love the attention to detail, you know, because, yeah. you know, like they say, the devil's in the details and it applies to music too. Definitely. And then when you, what was interesting was to like do those rehearsals really like, oh my God, like at the end of the day, you're just exhausted, you know, yeah. but then you go on tour and you're playing the music and you're just like, wow, I've never felt so confident. Like we are really nailing yeah. it. It really felt like we're in a great band, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a good feeling. Yeah, that's yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, how'd you come to work with Jay-Z? Jay-Z was through uh, No ID, a producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was through another friend, a guy named Steve Wireman, who is a guitar player, producer. He's Jay-Z, sorry, he is No ID's, like, go-to musician. He plays mm-hmm. on all these records from Jay-Z, Rihanna. You just look at No ID's discography, almost all of it for the last 10 years has this guy Steve playing guitar, and he's a great friend of mine. So he would just often call me like, hey, come through the studio, we're working on this beat, or we're doing a sample replay. I honestly didn't know it was for Jay-Z at the time, at least when we started. And then we were working on this, uh, just kind of adding some music to this sample. It ended up being for the song Marcy Me. And we were simultaneously replaying some stuff, but adding some like synthesizers, some guitars, some bass, and you know, then while I was there, they're like, oh, this is going to be for Jay-Z, and he's next door. And they're <laughs> like, oh, awesome. You didn't you know? know he was... Yeah, I, well. I didn't really know at the time, you know, um, <laughs> at least great. when I got called for it. It was really yeah. just me and Steve just kind of like doing our thing, and it yeah. ended up... It's kind of funny how often that happens in music. Mm-hmm. You'll just be making something, and it ends up a place that you would never have guessed. Yeah. I honestly didn't even get... Uh, I was never in the same room with Jay-Z. It <laughs> was me and Steve and No ID working on the beat. Hmm. Um, a- another person that, that, that you've mentioned that you've called him a mentor, Ricky Reed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. T- tell, tell me a little bit about because I, I, I think you met him in the Bay Area and then reconnected with him here. Yeah, yeah. We've got kind of a, a detailed history, I guess. I had a band in the Bay called The Park. We had a weekly residency. We were just playing for five years every week at this spot called The Royale. Ricky had a group called Wallpaper at the time. And my band was very open to just backing other artists up. That's what we wanted to do. We just wanted to work with the whole scene. Ricky was one of those people. He, we met through the Royale, also a studio in the Bay. You might know different first studios. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which was a real hub for just a lot of musicians. And mm-hmm. we met through that scene between the Royale and different fur. And 
we just kind of started playing live together. Uh, we were backing him up when he was pursuing that part of his career. Mm. And I joined his other band, Face in New York, for a couple shows. It was very, like, you know, casual at first, just kind of musicians jamming. He came down here years before I did. Then I moved down. I was still very, like, tour guy, just, like, hired gun musician. Mm -hmm. We reconnected through some studio sessions, working on a Kesha record. He was like, dude, if you ever want to leave the road, let me know. I didn't quite know what that meant at the mm. time, you know, but it was, I, I ended up quitting my main touring gig at the time. And within, you know, a couple days, Ricky was like, I want to, let's work full time. Let's like get on board here. Mm. You know, let's, let's get the publishing deal together yeah. and like, let's like dive in. Cause those like little sessions we did, we like, when we reconnected, we're like, oh, we got a, a thing going on, mm. you know, and we've been cruising ever since. It's been a couple years at least, you know. And you, yeah. you've had the opportunity to write and produce with, as I said in the open, some some remarkable artists, but, yeah. but from completely different, like, you know, um, um, creative sensibilities and sound, right. um, whether it's Lizzo yep. to Leon Bridges yeah. to Shawn Mendes. Right, right. Um, tell me, tell me about kind of, you know, how you found your way as a collaborator. Mm. Yeah. Working, working with these kinds of artists. Yeah, yeah, it's it's endlessly interesting because every artist is different, clearly, but even the people within their their crews are all different too. Mm -hmm. So it's like finding your way in that can be, at least for me, it was a little bit like relearning how to exist as a musician because when you're playing live, it's like you're really trying to deliver in a very specific way. It's like it's for this exact moment for mm. you and the crowd and mm. for us together. So being in the studio and kind of taking on more of a role of, oh, I can uh, offer some lyrics. I can offer some production ideas. I can engineer. I can, you know, start to utilize those skills. And like I said earlier, the variety is the thing. It's so like when there's always something new, it's like, okay, how can I exist in this space? Like, my my real like goal in doing it at first was just like okay what needs to be done I'll just do it <laughs> and I, I ended up doing some things I maybe shouldn't have been doing as a result of that like vocal producing you know at the time was like I often just say yes and then figure it out you know so a lot of like how I figure to work with different people in different situations yeah. is just still with that mentality like mm. what needs to get done I'm I'm down mm. you know? tell tell me about because I'm interested in this tell tell me a little bit about the difference between Producing vocals, because yeah. I've heard this from others as well. Producing vocals is, yeah. I, I was talking to somebody not not too long ago who said, um, oh, oh, it was um, Luther Dickinson from the North Mississippi All Stars. Oh yeah, and he was okay. talking about you know he's produced other artists and he goes, man, yeah. you get the vocal right, you're ninety seven percent of the way there. It really is true, especially in like a, especially in a pop context, you know, like getting the vocal right is. I mean, I've learned so much from Ricky Reed about that. Mm. He, it's like creating an environment where everyone's comfortable, where you can fully express the meaning of the song. You know, maybe we're even talking about what, why we're here. You know, it really gets almost therapeutic sometimes mm. in those places. Like, it's very intimate, too, because you're, like, in the headphones with the people. You yeah. know, you're talking in their ears. Like, they're emoting something that you either wrote together or they wrote themselves. So it's, it's really a detailed process. It's mm. like... It, it really comes down to a lot of like kind of just the relationship you can have 
with the person and the music very intimately. Yeah. Yeah. So continuing on the, the vocal producing. Yeah. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Tanya Tucker mm. and Brandy Carlisle and Shooter Jennings. So mm. Brandy and Shooter produced Tanya's okay. recent record. Yeah. And Tanya was telling the story that the vocals, all the vocals that she did on that record were with Brandy literally sitting in the vocal booth with her. Wow. I mean, wow. like so much as, you know, like tapping her on the knee. Yeah. See, that's the stuff. Yeah. And, and she said, first of all, I've never had anybody do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and looking at it from the outside, you think, wow, that is an incredibly sort of, you got to trust that person. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's that intimate, you know. And if that's what it takes to have the performance be what it needs to be, mm. that's what you do, you yeah. know. With, with Leon... I was in the room a lot for his vocal performances, and Ricky was engineering and really vocal producing. Mm. I was kind of there for moral support, you know? Yeah. But, like, for for him, it was, like, it was actually that last record we did, it was all just in the control room, like, speakers blaring with an SM7B, like, just because that was the vibe, and it was fun, yeah. you know? And it, it got us to all be in a place where it's, like, this is this is the vibe that the record needs, mm. so this is what we're gonna do. Even though it's completely unorthodox and almost silly, you yeah. know, like yeah. how how lo-fi that actually is. But yeah. it, it it's all those range of experiences, you know, really matter. But I, I would I, I would imagine some of that has to do if the if the artist is comfortable. Oh, for sure. That's that's really the. This bottom is what line. we do. Yeah, yeah, and like Sean Mendez is like that too. Like, I, I get a lot of opportunities to watch people who are really good at it. Teddy mm-hmm. Geiger produces Sean Mendez. Yeah. And she is also really good at just creating this incredibly like light environment, you know, just to be yourself. Yeah. You know? Well I was gonna I was gonna ask you about her yeah. because you've said that that she's one of the the most inspiring people definitely that you've ever met. And not, tell us why. Yeah. Uh, she she's one of those musicians that Coming to LA from the Bay, I was like, "Cool, I'm a guitar player. I can play guitar." You know, and then you meet these musicians who are like, they play guitar, they engineer, they produce, they write lyrics, they play piano, they play drums, and you're like, "Oh wow, okay, <laughs> I get it." Like, the idea of being a great musician is like way more all-encompassing than just being a uh, proficient at one instrument. And Teddy's like that. Yeah, and she's just a beautiful person. Yeah, you know, uh, um, and and go with me on this. This is not me speaking. This is just you know, sort of the conventional wisdom. Yeah, Some yeah. people might say yeah. about the work that you do in pop uh-huh. is even though it's soul-sucking, it mm. pays the bills that mm. allow you to do, you know, whatever you want to do personally in a creative sense. Mm. Mm-hmm. But if I understand correctly, that is not how you look at it. No, not really. You know, it's there is always something to pay in the bills for sure. Yes, <laughs> like no You question. can't deny that. No question. But... Um, I don't really look at working with pop artists as like there's no soul sucking involved. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like these people just want to make something that relates to them that they think is good. Mm. You know, and if that happens to be pop music, then that's just what it is. Mm. It's not like they're trying to pull the wool over the audience's eyes and make them make something stupid. You know, <laughs> it's like it's all high level stuff. Yeah. Some of the greatest musicians I've met are in this pop context. It's like it's it's not so much that I have even a delineation between it. It's like it's just oh, this is what we're doing today. Great, let's let's make it the let's best we can. Do it. Yeah, and that could be you know uh, a pop record. It could be you know the most intense fusion jazz record. It could mm. be ambient music. Like anything. If if you bring the level of like 
just understanding of what it is and doing your best you can to make it more what it is, then there's nothing about it that needs to be delineated. Yeah. It's all just music. What have you What have you taken from your experiences working with these different artists mm-hmm. and applied back, either, either either creatively or in a production sense, yeah. and applied back to your own work? Hmm. There's definitely some things that I've probably picked up even just not even knowing. Yeah, because you, know, yeah. you just watch people work and it's like, oh, that's how you do it, and just <laughs> internalized immediately. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's a lot of what I take is. Uh, probably just the general vibe. Mm. Like if you're working with someone who is just inspired to work or just to make something, kind of no matter what it is, I'm always like, yes, you know, thank you. <laughs> like yeah. I, I can, I, it really like helps me like remember what it's like and why you love music and mm. why you like working on it. Mm. What, what is it, do you think, makes you a good collaborator? It would probably be that I'm kind of down to do whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, like I'll just, I, if, if I'm in a room and there's, you know, a bunch of great musicians, I, I'm so happy to just do whatever needs to happen. Mm. You know, I'll play bass, I'll play guitar, I'll, I'll hang out, I'll make some coffee, you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> like whatever. Yeah. Like just being around that, you know, inevitably things will happen and you'll, you'll pass instruments around, people will get behind the computer, whatever, you mm. know. I, we, I like that. We, we were talking earlier that um, you're planning on, you know, kind of taking some of this music out Next year. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, um, what are you doing now? Right now, we we're, we have a residency in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, we play every first Sunday at this place called The Virgil, and we're really trying to make it a thing. It's really my label's night, and yeah. it just happens to be my record is out right now. Yeah. So my band is the one that's really performing. But you know, as we put out more and more records, that's going to be the home for it. Mm. You know, And we're going to take them on the road, too. We, ha- we got a trio to play the record because it's all guitar synth, so it's kind of interesting to figure out how to perform it live because I could get, you know, 10 guys or girls to play guitar yeah. synths with me, you know, and, like, have a three-drummer setup, yeah. you know. Robert Fripp's League of Crafty Guitarists. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But that's, you know, I like the trio context. There's something about, like, a classic guitar organ trio, kind of like Grant Green and, like, Wes Montgomery uh-huh. used to do with, like, an organ player, a drummer. And guitar, but instead of an organ, we're using synthesizers. Mm-hmm. So it, it definitely approximates the sound of the record. And then we, we live within the sound of the album and then explore from there. Yeah. Well, yeah. the album is called Joy Techniques. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. Thank you. We man. very much appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Thanks for being so much for having me. On is the great. Prestige 70 podcast. Yeah, Nate thank Mercer. you, Scott. Yeah. You'll find additional episodes of the Prestige 70 podcast at craftrecordings.com forward slash prestige seven zero or wherever you download podcasts this episode was brought to you by craft recordings crafting the future from the past edited by zach stillwell and produced by laura saez i'm scott goldman thanks for listening